Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo. I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And yeah, it's been like a couple of months, but we're <laughs> back, baby. Weeks. You know, another yeah, wind down uh, another set of eight weeks. Uh, and this week, month, on this day, let's just go with today. We're going to be talking about franchises that we've had long storied histories with. And this, of course, is prompted by recent games in these long storied franchises. So, Rob, I know that you have actually been playing one of uh, a game from one of my favorite franchises of all time, forever and ever, uh, dearly beloved Donkey Kong Country. You're playing Tropical Freeze, which makes me really excited. I am. Um, although, like, I am successfully ruining it for myself. Like, I should be clear about that oh, no. up front. I didn't do funky mode. Uh, <laughs> I did original. Okay. And I can get, like, I can consistently get, like, three of the letters in every level. Okay, okay. And then there's always a fourth level. So, okay. <laughs> so, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze posits a really interesting uh, political situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In which uh, the Donkey Kong family, clan, uh, whatever, are just hanging out in their islands, having a good time, and I think celebrating uh, DK's birthday. Yes, he has a banana cake. Yes, yes. Yeah. And like a fleet of penguin battleships shows up. (laughs) Um, Sorry, yeah. And I was going to say they're ice penguins, but like, duh, like what? other kind of penguins are there you know there anyway. actually are penguins in new zealand that sorry to will actually <laughs> but there are like temperate penguins in new zealand you know i guess that is true <laughs> uh i thought i thought it, i thought it was a temperate penguin it just became a puffin but you know i'm, I'm a little iffy on the be, entire thing i'm not right. i'm no uh, ornithologist <laughs> uh anyway so the penguins have apparently like declared war on the Donkey Kong uh, family for whatever reason, and they like start blasting ice shells onto the island and freezing the tropics. Uh, hence the name. <laughs> and it's a really gorgeous game. Yeah. I- I'm finding, and it is like the environments are so like beautifully. Uh, realized and like charmingly animated. Uh, I love the way that like the penguin soldiers like sort of waddle stomp yeah. their way around the levels. <laughs> um, but the other thing about this is I think Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze is a game that's very good at tantalizing you. <laughs> and it puts things like in your eye line, be, be they like coins or uh, little letters that spell out Kong or little puzzle pieces, you can sort of see that these things are out there in the level, and you can almost get to them, but not by the obvious way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if, if it's if it's high, it's just a little too high to ever jump to. It is not, like, there is no jump you can ever make that's going to get, get you there. So clearly, there's another way to reach that, you know, letter. Uh, the, you know, the letter K, for instance. And I gather, like, if you collect, if you complete a level and you get, like, the full slate of letters and spell out kong you get like a secret level right you get like well you have extra to, levels you get you gotta really work for it so you need to collect every kong in every level in a world and then oh no oh yeah oh no yeah. no danielle this is not rob i would i would recommend that you 
don't worry about that yet. That is honestly for like your second playthrough. Okay. You know, like get through the game. It does get very, very challenging, I think, by the last world. It's already starting to. Yeah. Like I'm still in the first world, but like the first level, a couple levels were like really trivial. And I was like, oh, this is cute and charming and fun and everything. <laughs> and then like somewhere in like the third, fourth level, Canopy like chaos. I started hitting these sequences where I was like, oh shit, this is getting like really tricky to string all of this together after the <laughs> checkpoint. Yeah. It's a tough game. I love how, it's a tough game. Go ahead. I love how kinetic a lot of the levels are. Like there are so many moving pieces and like there's a number of sequences where like you have to uh, like something i'm encountering a lot of now is there's a lot of like moving timed platforms and traps and uh moving monsters and then like swinging elements that you can either hit or climb onto and you sort of have to time all of those moving pieces together all at once to like really navigate a sequence and it's surprisingly easy to screw those up. And the, like the game is starting to like really bring the heat pretty early. Yeah. It, um, oh, I think it is, uh, a, a truly great game, but it does, it does get very, very challenging, especially it, it's really the last world, uh, for me where things started to like, Oh my God, you know, super, super tough. Uh, you know, it does give you the option of, uh, sort of going into levels with inventory items and, because coins are so plentiful and because lives are so plentiful, I think it sort of encourages you to like, go ahead. It's all right if you die a whole bunch. Like, go ahead and experiment. Go ahead and, you know, if you want to try to find secrets, go for it. Like, go go have fun. And I think that's true even in the original mode. Like, funky mode is definitely there for, uh, it's there for you if you need it. But I don't think, you know... I think the game itself allowed you to customize it to the degree that it's okay. If you're not going funky, yeah. it's okay. Like, I understand why you wouldn't want to go funky as well. <laughs> go funky, you know what I'm saying? Um, because then you can't really appreciate the full breadth of the cool uh, Kong family members. Like, Cranky has this pogo jump that, that is necessary to find that is so some different. of the secrets. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different way of moving. And Dixie has her little twirl, which kind of lets you get a little bit of extra height, which is really cool. And Diddy, of course, has his, his little jetpack glide, so you can kind of do these long, slow jumps. So I, I think original is great. Like, Funky's there if you need it. Again, I, I think that's totally a good thing uh, for beginners, but, yeah, you know, I don't think it's necessary to go funky. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's all I'm saying here. I, uh, yeah, I, I probably just need to start ignoring the collectibles because <laughs> they are seriously like slowing my pace in this game down through to a crawl. And I'm not, I'm not enjoying the aspect of the platformer, which is like going through it at speed and like really getting into like a flow state with it. Oh, Instead, yeah. I'm like constantly putting the controller down and just like staring with like increasingly increasing frustration <laughs> at like the layout and running through like you know like I I there's gonna I know I know somehow that vine I didn't climb like a few screens back. <laughs> I know it probably led somewhere that lets me connect to that uh you know barrel I see in the distance behind uh the thing I want to get to. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I'm starting to really fixate on that stuff and I probably just need to put that behind me yeah. and just enjoy the game. I, I would say the best thing about this game is the flow state it, where you're constantly learning those new things, those new little mechanics. Oh, what does this leaf do? What does this vehicle do? That kind of thing. So 
yeah, don't don't worry about the collectibles too much. If you want to go for secret stuff, like if you want to go for extra stuff, go for the secret exits. Those are real. Those go to those kind of silhouette levels that are very pretty and very fun to play. So those are secret levels that you don't need to find. Like oh, every little collectible. It's more, you know, look for that secret exit. I can I can give you a hint where the first one is, and it's pretty cool. It's a uh, uh, spoilers, spoilers, whatever. It's a, f- okay. it's a four-year-old game, whatever. But uh, <laughs> uh, obviously just recently released on the Switch. That's why uh, folks are playing it again. Uh, Canopy Chaos, I think is the name of it, is the first level yes. where you get cranky. Uh, right in the first world. At the very, very end screen, you can actually use his pogo stick to jump a little bit higher than the like end stage barrel. So try that. Just try that out. I would okay. Say. Just try that out. Okay. It's worth I your time. Those are always worth your time. The secret levels are really, really cool. They're just, you know, you just find a secret exit through uh, the level and it, it takes you to a, a, a secret other level, which is really rad and fun. So those are good. So yeah. I was sort of wondering though, like yeah. this is a series that, you know, we talked about this a bit on Waypoint, Waypoint Radio about like that you can't really even definitively rank these games it's like hard. like your answer to that's going to change based on the day i'm just kind of curious does that does that sort of <laughs> moving target of <laughs> ranking in that sense that like it's really difficult for you to pin down like clear favorites or, or clear games that you, that you don't like uh like to what degree does that reflect a change or an evolution in your relationship with this series right because like I think, like, sort of, like, when I was playing Total War Britannia this week, it started to dawn on me, like, how freaking much of my life I spent (laughs) playing the series. Yeah. Like, in a very real sense, like, I've kind of grown up with the series and kind of even started aging with it. Um, So I'm kind of curious, like, is there an element of that intertwined in your relationship with the Donkey Kong series? Yeah, I think so. I think the way you just said it really nails it for me of of like sort of aging with the series or because I, I feel like I grew up with uh, the Donkey Kong Country games in a very real way. They were the first games I really loved. I always loved the Mario games. You know, I grew up on platformers like a lot of, you know, Nintendo kids, kids with an NES, Super NES, uh, kids in the 90s and the 80s, of course. And the Donkey Kong Country games were special because they they really defined a lot of what my tastes in games would be, of course. Like going in, like exploring beautiful environments and traversing them in ways that were beautiful and felt amazing. Because those games are always so much about momentum and they change things up so often with, you know, with vehicle levels or with different ways of moving around the world or messing with gravity and all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, and games that were just really beautiful and set in really beautiful, weird, uh, just gorgeous, bizarre worlds. Uh, and so I think I, I do what I do in large part. I, I have this job and was interested in the games industry and was interested in video games because of this series, right? Like that's, I have always in my life wanted to make a game that felt like playing Donkey Kong Country. And like, yeah, I, I play around, I mess around and make little tiny itty bitty games for fun. Also largely because of that. Because one day, man, one day I'm going to make my own Donkey Kong Country. I mean, obviously not Donkey Kong Country, but. You know, something that like speaks to those elements. And so I grew up with those games. And then, of course, Donkey Kong Country Returns came out in 2010. I really liked it. I thought it was very good, uh, but it didn't really capture the magic for me. It, it was a really good kind of recreation that had very good level design. It, it was a very, very good game. 
And I played it twice. You know, I played it on the Wii and then I actually reviewed it on the 3DS a couple of years later. So, you know, all was fine. Tropical Freeze, I think, is on the level uh, where the level design is obscenely great. I've already obviously gone through that, but it has that incredible, yeah. like, atomic level design that's constantly teaching you new things, constantly showing you new things, and uh, introducing new elements all the time. It so has, you say atomic? Yeah, like a... I could iterative atomic, you know, <laughs> as in as in like all the elements really, really sort of speak to the player experience, right? The uh, player experience goals. I talk about that sometimes, <laughs> but yeah. everything about it, right? Everything from the music and the way that's dynamic to, you know, the way that little mechanics uh, like the, the change in sort of the physics in a vehicle level where there are actually two different types of vehicles, things like that. Every single thing speaks to an experience that is dynamic, that is uh, paced in a very particular way, sometimes very fast, but other times kind of more deliberate uh, and colorful and zany and sort of friendly and fun. Uh, and and I guess I could throw other adjectives there, but I, I hope you, <laughs> you get the idea, yeah. right? Um so that that type of design, that that level of design, where I could really appreciate the craft of how this was made, coupled with that magic, that that sort of je ne sais quoi, that sort of it's it's friendly and goofy and fun in a way that even Returns wasn't. Returns feels almost sterile compared to this game, uh, and it hmm. and it has very similar you know character design and similar artistic style, but it just does things. In a quirkier way, in a in a more interesting way, there's something more intricate about the artwork itself, uh, about the layers of sort of the uh, layers of background and foreground and the way they move together that I think actually gets at sort of the magic of those earlier oh, those earlier games that may and well have been uh, partially designed by accident. I mean, you know, I've heard stories about like at Rareware they had like <laughs> basically post-it notes and that's how they designed half the levels. They're like, this would be cool put a post-it note there, <laughs> you know, stuff like huh. that, which, you, you know. Like sort I, of assembled by like diagrams. <laughs> yeah, which as long as they place tested it and it and it was fun, yeah. like I, I don't, I'm not going to knock it, but uh, this, this well, feels this like I also wanted, I wanted to ask about yeah. in your sort of retelling of this history, which is like you talked about sort of the magic and recapturing the magic. Yeah. And I think the problem, a problem for me is like, and this is this is definitely an experience colored by my experience with the new Total War game. Yeah. Like you can read read about that on Waypoint. Like this is a game that like kind of troubled me in some ways because of the ways that is like recognizably a Total War game, but also like kind of messes a lot of that up. But the thing that I sort of started dwelling on is like I often do think about the magic of my favorite games in the series uh, and what it would be like to recapture it. But I'm also increasingly skeptical that the magic was in the game versus the magic was a moment yeah. between me and the game that can't be recaptured. And like, so I don't know, like how, like, have you been able to sort of reassess those earlier games or do they largely exist for you in like, not saying it's not a clear recollection, yeah. but it's also a different thing than, um, like recent hands-on critical experience, right? Like for me, I like I haven't played my favorite game in the Total War series, Medieval One. Uh, I haven't played that game in like five, six years, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more. And so what I have are these really old memories of how I remember the game working and how I remember it feeling. But I'm not sure if I went back, did it actually feel that way? 
and I'm not sure I ever actually did, but I know that at the time that's how it how it read to me. Yeah, uh, I have a weird. Um, I do this weird thing where I watch a fuckload of speedruns every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I often uh, not like every single day, but. Most work days, I would say, I have speedruns kind of going on in the background. A runner is sort of doing their thing. It's often Zelda games, but it's also often Donkey Kong Country games. Um, and I, God, we could have uh, an entire podcast, not even just like an episode of the podcast, but an entire podcast about speedrunning uh, from a complete scrub's point of view, but but who just finds it fascinating for what it shows you about the design of older games, especially. Um, so... I have not played Donkey Kong Country 1, 2, and 3 uh, in years. Uh, it hasn't been that long. I definitely have them on, like, the virtual console on the Wii U. So it's probably yeah. been, like, oh, God. You know, let's call it four years, maybe, since I've I really played them. Uh, so definitely, like, as an adult, certainly. Like, the last time I played them was not at age 11 or anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I haven't played them in a, in a couple of years Uh but I do sort of expose myself to the games often and uh, pretty pretty frequently, I would say. I mean, like, again, I, I'm watching Zelda speedruns like all day, like every day. Yeah. And Donkey Kong Country ones kind of more as they come out. I, maybe it's just there's fewer people in that community and they're not. It's, I'm not just seeing them pop up no, on Twitch certainly. as much. Yeah, which I guess makes sense. Uh, they're still popular. I'm not trying to say they aren't popular speed games, but. But I'm watching those and uh, looking at the level design and looking at the art and looking at the music and looking at how they came together. And, and I, I still think they're pretty fucking cool. Now, I am yeah. sure there's an element of nostalgia there, though. Like, I, I am sure that being 10 years old had something to do <laughs> with yeah. how strongly this imprinted. If I saw something today uh, that kind of is on that level, that's doing the same things, that is, you know, kind of has that level of stuff, whatever, I would probably still like it, I think. I would think I would probably still be impressed by it and probably still enjoy it. Uh, but of course, I am primed to love these games because they were so formative in the first place, I think. Yeah, I uh, I could probably benefit by going back and looking at more of that stuff. Like, I always forget... In part because I so strongly prefer just playing games versus watching them. Oh, that's fair. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but I also, I also do think, like, to an extent, it probably creates a larger hurdle for me in my study of games. Mm. Then You know what I mean? Like, installing, playing, refamiliarizing yourself with a game, it can be a pretty heavy lift, as oh, we say, yeah. around the Waypoint oh, offices. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but you can actually glean a ton from a skilled let's player who like has been seriously thinking about how to do the series and like is attacking it from a place of like knowledge and understanding and unpacking it as they go. Like that is a really quickly informative way to like start uh, sort of peeling apart layers of design and not having to play it is really helpful. And so I should embrace this stuff more, but push comes to shove. I'll be like, instead what I'll tell myself is nah, I won't, I won't watch these videos of people playing medieval one. I'll reinstall it. Someday, uh, <laughs> and someday turns out to be like you know never or the something. The twelfth of never, yeah. <laughs> right, but uh, so yeah, for so for me, for a lot of old games, uh, the memories are 
Well, we, we talked a bit about this, I guess, on Waypoint Radio a couple weeks ago. We were talking about uh, favorites of all times and, yeah. and the weird ones that sort of pop up there. Uh, most of the games on that list I could I could vouch for easily. I play Last Express probably once every two or three years. Nice, yeah. Uh, I played Total uh, Tie Fighter not that long ago. Free Space a few years ago. Medieval One is is a long time ago, and this is kind of what I was writing in my review of Thrones of Britannia, uh, which is the start of the Total War Saga series. But I sort of had to wrestle with the fact that. On some level, I'm comparing every game to Medieval Total War, which was the second Total War game. It came out in like 2002. It's a it's it's a long time ago, man. Like yeah. that is that is ages ago, and that is basically the infancy of the Total War series. Like that wasn't like now in the scheme of things, this was you know the series was barely it barely had an identity at this point. Like there were two games in. And everything they've done since then has really been based off Rome, uh, which was their which was their third major release. And yet, I have let my reaction to every single Total War game be informed by this increasingly uh, rose tinted memory of medieval Total War. <laughs> and on the one hand, I think that's really unfair, right? Because it's like you are pitting a really beautiful treasured memory against the real and the now. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough, that's, that's, that's unfair. Uh, as, that's, that's an unfair yardstick in a lot of ways. But at the same time, the memory is real. Like, I don't know how, like, you know what I mean? Like, details might have gotten embellished. Like, maybe I'm being a little bit romantic about the entire thing. But, like, parts of it were as good as I think they were. Yes. Parts of it I know for a fact fucking worked brilliantly. And they totally happened. And they don't happen now. The, the, the games do not evoke those moments or those feelings nearly as often or successfully. And so... Yeah, like I'm clinging to this old memory of this game, the series and its infancy, and this design that doesn't even exist in the modern Total War franchise, really. Uh, but at the same time, like it should, though. Like the, <laughs> in some ways, like this is this is the high watermark for certain aspects of the series that, like, I think the only reason the series doesn't get dragged more often for not meeting this is because the series was so young that people never saw. People never played games that worked this way, and people have sort of had their expectations redefined by this the game the type of games that the Total War series turned into. Yeah, it's funny the thing about memories because of course memories themselves are impermeable or sorry rather than impermeable they're completely permeable they yeah. do change with time they do sort of shift and get fuzzy at the edges. And if you think about trying to recall very specific images in your head, you have an image in your head and it's clear because your brain is able to interpret things on a a level that we're just incapable of actually communicating to each other, right? Like I can, I can see an image and not necessarily explain to you every feeling that I'm feeling for it. And I can't explain like every pixel of what that would look like in a, in a painting or a portrait or a 3d model, 
but your mind is so good at filling in the gaps that like it, it, it becomes something whole and something valuable uh, to you. And that has always been the, the craziest thing to me to try to wrap my own brain around the things that my brain does uh, when it comes to nostalgia, basically for games or for anything, really. But because we're talking about games, there's a lot yeah. wrapped into playing a game like for, for you, uh, you know, uh, Total War and for me, Donkey Kong. That has to do with the very specific, like, chemical, emotional experience of being inside your brain in that moment at that time. That is, like, just, it's wild to me that we can't fully ever, ever fully communicate those feelings or ever fully communicate what's going on in your head and what you're experiencing, even though we could have like a shared experience over something. We could have been playing it next to each other. We could have been, you know, hot seating it. You know, you play this level, I play the next level till we die and have that shared experience and still come away with something completely in the game, different. right? You're not yeah, proposing in the ga- some in the sort game. of like twisted game. <laughs> no, in the, in the game itself. It's, it's really, man, it's just wild. It's just wild to me. Um, Sorry, now I'm picturing like Saw, but Donkey Kong Country is like the vessel for. (laughs) You know, what what is his name? Jigsaw? Yeah, Yeah, Jigsaw. What a douchebag. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, he's always wearing. I always expect him to have a fedora, even though I know he doesn't wear fedoras. Oh, yeah, no, totally. That fucking. No, that guy you know for a fact, like thought Hugh Hefner was like the coolest fucking cat, oh, and my like had a smoking ja- yes. jacket and like a hat at some point. No, fuck that guy. Uh, but <laughs> you were talking a little bit about memory, and I was thinking about like on the one hand, yes, I can sort of see images and I can sort of like relive snatches of moments I played these games. But then at the same time, no, I can't. Like you know what I mean? Like if yeah. I freeze frame it and I really look at what's there. It's like one of those things you can only see it out the corner of your eye, but the minute you start like trying to draw like your actual attention to the details of that picture, <laughs> that memory, it starts like running away from you. Yeah. It starts like blowing away, like one of those um, you know, like uh paintings made of sand. Yes. And that is a little bit troubling to me because, you know, cuz at a certain point I start to realize like this memory that I return to a lot like there's a lot I can't make out in it. Like I have this picture I can see clear as day, but then when I look at the picture or like try to get details out of the picture, like parts of it aren't even there. There's parts that aren't even sketched out. It is more of a feeling than it is an image, but all of it is starting to make me think about, um, you know, you wrote a thing this week about a semblance. Yes. Assemblance. Someone's oversight. Yes. And you were talking about, how it's these it's these games that are really to an extent about memory mm-hmm. and exploring it, but also like playing around with its fungibility. And it reminded me a little bit of now, and I can't remember the game you're writing about this with this next reference. You'll have to help me out. There's a game you're talking about that like captured. You said the logic of dreams, uh, the weird surrealism of the way dreams work. And this was something you wrote a couple months ago, oh, man. but. Yeah. I've like reading that thing about assemblance, your description of the game was in many ways like parallel to your description of this game about dreams. And it made me realize like how much like dreams, memories can sometimes seem. And that's kind of where I'm at with a lot of 
the Total War series to an extent, and a lot of things that I that I value over time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the way I interpret, like the way I interpret a lot of the lessons I've gleaned, uh, you know, across across my time here on Earth. But <laughs> like, but like applying it to this one like trivial example, but the series that I've been playing for like almost twenty years at this point, it's funny to me that like now each of these games I play is sort of. And like playing and playing and playing Thrones of Britannia through this in the stark relief, Thrones of Britannia is a misfire. It is a very weak Total War game. It's not a terrible game because like the Total War format is really sound one. Like even a bad Total War game is still an okay time. But playing it was really troubling to me because it was like I was recognizing pretty much all the elements that were in play. Everything made sense as a Total War game. It was all familiar, but all of it just didn't really work. And it didn't work in ways that were so perfectly characteristic of the Total War series that I immediately started like, <laughs> again, it was like the, uh, you know, would you kindly heal turn in the <laughs> middle of uh, Bioshock, where immediately like I'm like snapping back through different memories of Total War games. And I'm like, Maybe they were all just this fucked up. <laughs> like maybe, and maybe they've been fucked up since the beginning, right? Like maybe even those early treasured memories of this series are paintings, are half-finished paintings of memory that I have then drawn in details and stories um, yeah. over time that weren't there in the game originally. And that like freaked me out. What a troubling thought though. Like, like the thought that like it, there is no such thing as permanence in certain ways, like, or there's no such thing as any any kind of objective factor in reality. Yeah, that's terrifying. It's fucking oh yeah, dude, terrifying. <laughs> Why do you think I was a week late on that fucking review, Daniel? <laughs> that's what it was. It caused like this massive like. Just mental, no, like... 9 a.m. last Friday, you're like, you think you're going to get that uh, review done today? I was like, sure thing. And then, like, 5 p.m. on Friday, I'm like, oh, my God. What if, what if everything is just this negotiation between, like, feeling and thought and memory? I mean, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, right? it's terrifying to think about too much. Yeah, Semblance is a game that is that is the text of the game. <laughs> that is absolutely like what is kind of going on. It's a game about exploring recreated memories, which is bananas. I am really primed to play Assemblance this week, as oh, you, you might so as are. You guessed. You can definitely play the first one. The first one first is a, is more about like a personal memory. Uh, and the second one is more about like a, an interesting, cool conspiracy-ish story with At the, the memory shop. Space stuff. At the memory shop, yeah. So yeah. uh Oh, but they're both really good. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's it's been so interesting uh, to see other people. Not to, I'm not going to talk about Donkey Kong uh, too much more, but it has been interesting to see other people embrace it uh, recently because for so long, for like four years, basically, I, I felt like one of the only people who was really. Really, myself and Dan Reichert from Giant Bomb are like the only two who are really like going to bat uh, for Tropical Freeze saying like, no, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. It's actually fantastic. So it has been fascinating uh, to see other people actually play the game and be like, hey, you know what? There is something here. <laughs> it's not just this goofy, you know, piece of shit. 
Is it just that it's on Switch now and yeah. like it's reaching more people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not that nobody played Obviously, I, I should probably say, like, it's not that nobody played it on the Wii U. It's just that not that many people had a Wii U is really the thing. It, it was a right. decent seller for that system. It's just that's but every obviously Wii U a game bar. had this nightmarish, like, okay, but is it worth getting a Wii U for? And the answer was always no, except in the case of Zombie U, which, yeah, probably in retrospect, it was probably worth getting. I mean, you're talking to the world's biggest, like, Wii U apologist. Like, I, I yeah. think there were several, like, truly great games on that system. I, th- I, 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 my, one of my very first pieces for Waypoint was about, like, this was a system that was basically the Dreamcast of its time uh, and had some really great games. Captain Toad, uh, other people like Bayonetta probably more than me, but Bayonetta 2, uh, definitely Tropical Freeze. Uh, I thought the uh, Mario 3D World games, mm-hmm. well, I guess there was only one. It was just Mario 3D World, but that was fantastic. There were some really great games on the Wii U that I, I will always go to bat for it. It was really good. Uh, but that is, uh, you know, that is neither here nor there because it seems like a lot of the great games for the Wii U are coming out on the Switch. So yeah. that's that's not a bad thing. Which is like, great. It's good, yeah. It's, it's cool the way that the Switch to an extent also feels like a best of machine. Yes. Yeah. Need to get Captain Toad on there. But uh, yes, absolutely. Captain Toad is really, really great, too. I, I will go to bat for that game as well. Uh, kind of any day of the week. And I guess that's that's part of, uh, you know, the Mario franchise, you know, long running uh, franchises. It is interesting to me, however, uh, if we're going to talk franchises just for a moment, just briefly, how my relationship to Mario games has changed sort of over time. Um, cause I sort of, uh, really liked Mario Odyssey last year, but it was not, it did not floor me nearly as much as, uh, Breath of the Wild did, for example. Uh, and I actually liked a tactics game the the Mario tactics game, uh, Mario versus Rabbids, it considerably more, it was higher on my top 10 list. So it has been interesting to see how I have sort of evolved as a platformer, uh, player, <laughs> and that I find things like the Donkey Kong Country's uh, modes of movement actually more interesting and more like pleasurable to play than than Mario games. And, and I'm saying that, that as somebody who loves Mario games. <sighs> That's a really interesting question. I find the worlds themselves much more interesting to explore. Um, I think Super Mario World was probably the high point for me. And that is the most sort of secretive SNES. with secret worlds and, and, and sort yeah. of real, real, real uh, rewards for exploration. Not that the other games didn't. Obviously they did. There's secrets and, you know, secret areas in all of the sort of 2D Mario games. And, and even, um, I'm actually sort of thinking about it now. Mario 64 certainly had things like, not necessarily like secret areas. There, there was place, there are places that were, semi-secret but it was a little bit more of what you see is what you get i guess and i think all the mario games are a little bit more of that than the donkey kong country games which were always about finding secrets and figuring out the way to get to a weird thing uh you know that kind of thing it's just an emphasis thing there's secrets in both obviously there are areas you know you could get to if you if you did x y and z in both uh, but Mario 64, which I think a lot of people think of as like the high watermark for uh, 3D Mario platformers at the very least, was a little bit more, here's your obstacle course, it's fucking awesome, 
but here it is, you know, like it's, you can see most of it, certainly secrets, but you can see most of it. Whereas something like the Banjo-Kazooie games or, you know, the Donkey Kong Country games, there's a lot more of like, maybe it's even a little random, maybe it's even not the best design, but it is a lot of secrets and a lot of fun stuff to kind of mess around with and play around with and, you know, go see what you can find and find a cool secret, basically. So maybe a little of that. Then in like, I don't actually think Mario is all that appealing of a character. Yeah. But I think Donkey Kong is adorable. <laughs> and Diddy and Dixie are even better. And, you know, look, they, they made some fuck ups. I think uh, Donkey Kong. Cranky 64. voted Trump. Let's be real. <laughs> cranky voted for Trump. I hear he sure? loves my channel. Are you sure he's not like an, actually a Bernie bro? Like an ancient hippie oh shit there's a strong bernie vibe (laughs) fuck you're right he might be like an actual like angry crusty hippie now i like him now again (laughs) like okay yeah yeah exactly exactly whereas i don't know you know bowser definitely voted for trump you know yeah 100 percent. i don't know man (laughs) but then uh, yeah that's the bad guy i guess but but yeah, there's uh, there's something to be said for the idea or the illusion that there's a lot of secrets kind of hiding behind a veneer. Um, and I feel like I'm I'm like pooping on Mario. I love Mario. I love the Mario games. Like, I yeah. love them. You know, I'm never going to say no to playing a Mario game. It's just, I guess when you ask about a preference, I might just, you know, I might I prefer the ape is all. <laughs> an element of... So at this point now, every Mario game has to both be a Mario game and then also subvert expectations of what a Mario game is. Yes, to some is kind of how it feels. Yeah. And then I play a game like Tropical Freeze, and I know it's it's from a few years ago, so like to a degree, it's not even a one-to-one comparison to where Mario is right now. But nevertheless, I'm playing it, and I'm like, this is just a really good ass, demanding, sophisticated platformer in the classic tradition. Yes. And there is, you know what I mean? Like, and there is both nothing more and nothing less to that. Right. Uh, Whereas I feel like at this point, Mario has this weight of history that it can't like, that it now has to be sort of in dialogue with player expectations, its own history, et cetera, in a way that like a Donkey Kong will never have to be. Yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and I liked what Odyssey did new. I loved its sort of adventure game stuff. Like It, it did that 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 thing that I talk about all the time with Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie, which is like having that little bit of adventure game DNA in there mm-hmm. alongside the sort of very classic platforming, uh, for sure. So I, I really liked what it was doing new. Absolutely. I loved 3D World. I played through all of 3D World like three times or four times like with different people. I loved doing multiplayer in a 3D Mario. I can't believe it worked. <laughs> it seems like a concept that should not work, but they made it work. Like I am constantly awed by what the mainline uh, Mario games can do. Like I, I really love those games. Uh, so yeah, I don't want to throw throw any any shade at them. I like that they innovate. Um, I, just, I just also like that a Donkey Kong purpose to <laughs> yeah. I just like Donkey Kong a lot. I would love to play a good Donkey Kong uh, 3D platformer, of which there are none. I think Donkey Kong 64 is the most hilarious 
black sheep in a run of games that that maybe exists in history. Like Donkey Kong 64 came out in a run that included Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, uh, Jet Force Gemini, what other great rare, Blast Core, Goldeneye, Perfect Dark, the original Perfect Dark, like really good games. If not the greatest games of all time, which I'm not, I'm not going to say that, but like. Wait, somehow, that was all one studio? Yeah, this, this was all rare on yeah. the N64. That is such a wild run of. <laughs> In the middle of that, like plethora of Diddy Kong Racing, like, which is a great game and I will not hear otherwise, uh, like creative, good, solid games, Donkey Kong 64 comes in and it is like three quarters duct tape. And like the only, a Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, another actually good game, like the only one that's actually a collectathon out of all of those. And that, that game is barely functional. Like watching speedruns of it is fascinating because there's so many elements where they clearly put together, they slapped a Band-Aid on a hemorrhaging wound in the code and just said, hey, here you go, kids of America. <laughs> Boy, here's your Donkey Kong. <laughs> like, man, sorry to keep going off about Donkey Kong. It is just, uh, I clearly have a very long and storied so wait, is it a shit? Is it a shitty game? Yeah, it's terrible. Okay. It's not, okay, okay. It's not terrible. But it is not good in the way that those other games were like really good and really polished. Like as in had good and interesting ideas and actually executed well on them. It, it is just like, whew, I would love to read the book about the development of that game because that is fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, that like somehow I forget that Rare did all of those games, like dominated the N64, I guess. In uh, almost every way, yeah. I need to, like, somebody has to have written a book about that, right? There are about interviews. That, about that run. There, are de- there was that fabulous Eurogamer piece about kind of what happened at Rare, but it wasn't, like, a book. It wasn't a book. It was, like, the, you know, there's an interview with the Stamper Brothers and uh, a bunch of other stuff, and it goes through sort of the buyout, the Microsoft buyout. Oh, the who? okay, who killed Rare? Yes, and that's a yeah, really good piece. Joint? No, it's Simon Parkin. Okay. There we go. Yeah, it's a okay. Simon Parkin joint. Fun. There you go. Yeah, okay. No, I'm going yeah. to settle down with this tonight. <laughs> it's very, very good. Uh, but I, I do want, like, the book. <laughs> yeah. Also because of who I am, of course. I'm so yeah. fascinated by this, but yeah. So the last thing I'll say about my sort of franchise obsession here is um, <laughs> here's another reason why I think, like, because my tastes have changed as well, and it's another reason why I think, like, modern total war games are probably never really going to make me happy. <laughs> and that is that um when I first started playing these games, so every total war game is divided between like the strategic map and then the tactical battles. And really early on in the series what you'd realize is that you could auto resolve battles, but the it was way iffier and the AI would frequently take way higher losses than you would if you were commanding. So it was better to uh it was often better to command the battles yourself. And for those first two games, maybe even for the first three, I was so into, this was such a new thing. These 3D battles were such an amazing new thing that I was like, fuck yeah. Who would ever get tired of doing this? Like, I'm just going to keep playing all these battles. Large and small, I will command these battles myself, and it'll be a blast. <laughs> well, it wasn't it's like blast. 16 years later now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. 
<laughs> no, but that's exactly right. Like when you are a freshman in college and like classes are fucking easy and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're on your own. Like classes are easy because you're a freshman and not trying to like overload you too much. You are away from your parents and like you can do whatever the fuck you want now. And what you want when you're like 18, 19 is to finally just play your goddamn video games in peace. Yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> and so like to an extent, like so at the time when I'm sort of at peak total war, I am just like living high on the hog, as it were. Like I am just I am just playing the shit out of Total War and fighting all of these battles and like having these marathon sessions. And it is great. It is it is everything I've dreamed of. Um but you know Years go by and a couple things change. One, it's just who has the time to do this over and over again. Like you, the battles aren't that different, people. So eventually, you start being like, "I don't think I want to do this." <laughs> and the other thing is, I think because people were starting to have that reaction, Creative Assembly, I think they tweaked a few things with how auto resolving the battles works, and they made it a little they made it easier for you to trust that the AI calculator wouldn't totally screw you. (laughs) And then it becomes the situation where there's two things now. One, I'm actually playing an increasing amount of the games just on the strategic layer, which means the 50, 50 balance of the game, the way it's designed is turning into more of a 80, 20 balance in terms of how I'm experiencing it. Uh, and then there's also the element of I've been to this, you know, I've been to this rodeo so many times that um, if I am going to fight a battle, it needs to be like epic, you know, it needs to be tremendous. And so now I go into a lot of these these major clashes, and I'm like, well, it needs to live up to those long ago memories of like medieval one. Like talk about an unfair, you know. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. everything now needs to be a game seven of the World Series. Yeah. Oh. God, that's so hard. I just hate the way human brains are designed to always get used to things that are great and then expect more and need more to get the same high. It's just very annoying. <laughs> Yep, just uh, a a speech I return to way too much is uh, Don Tra- Don Draper's "What's Happiness" speech. It's a feeling you get before you need more happiness, or something like that. Oh, it's true. Why are our brains so terrible? <laughs> I don't like... know. We we are really a trash organism. We really are. Oh, well, I mean, not not to call anybody uh, especially trash uh, or anything, but. Our first letter does have a lot to do with uh, finding happiness in games and uh, not sabotaging them for yourself. So, unless there's more you'd like to talk about in no, terms of franchises. Let's dig into that weekend correspondence that's been moldering in the mailbox <laughs> for, uh, for, for some time. Yeah, for a couple months, you know. Uh, all right, awesome. So, Andy in Sweden sent us this very good and very relevant question. So, Andy writes, hey, weekend, love the show. Thank you, Andy. All right, done with the editorializing. Here we go. I've got a conundrum, and I want to ask you guys what to do. After hearing your discussions about Into the Breach, I finally decided to purchase it for myself and see what it was all about. 
I'd heard countless stories about how hard the game was, but after my third outing, I made it to the final mission and died near the end, I think. Then my brain went, well, got all that game has to offer now. <laughs> Replaying it now would be just grinding at this point. Same thing happened in Spelunky 2. I had a similar downturn in The Evil Within 2 recently, where I admired it in the beginning for being so hard and open world, do whatever you want. The world felt so expansive and it was so punishing to be detected. Then I found out you had a map, uh, and if you do the quests that you're given by following the markings on the map, it was super easy. Poof, the magic was gone. So how do I keep myself from sabotaging my enjoyment in the games I play? Love the show, Andy from Sweden. Oh, Andy. I think we have opposite brains. Uh, because Yeah, I was like, like Danielle's, ready, Danielle's ready to kick Andy's ass. <laughs> no, Andy, it's cool to think the way that you do. I just... Uh, I just don't relate, my friend. Uh, so I am a Steam says I'm 327 hours uh, into into the breach at this point, and it's clear it's probably in the 200s. To be fair, I keep it on during work sometimes. Uh, I just like keep it on in the background. I have most of the achievements. Uh, I can't. I can't put that game down. I cannot stop playing it. Things hook into my brain. And they just won't stop until they're done. Like, it's just this organism has worked its way into my brain. And I will be its organism until it's done with me. So uh, I, I can't do that. <laughs> it is an interesting problem to have, however. Uh, once you sort of feel like you've mastered something or it's something's not hard anymore, you're done with it. I guess I can kind of see that with with certain types of like athletic activity for sure. I am very 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 drawn to very ridiculously difficult sporting things. <laughs> like it's why I'm like super into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's ridiculously hard and takes forever to have the basest baseline of competency with it. I still not even close to having like a baseline competency with it. I've been doing it like a year and a half. Uh, so I, I do get it on some level. I guess games are just in a different place in my brain somehow. I don't know, Rob, do you relate to, to Andy's? Issue? I totally do. Okay. Um, yeah. Like, because a lot of times, even though you know you haven't really solved a game, for some reason, there's a moment where you get a glimpse of the road the game is taking you down. Yeah. And because you can see that road, you're like, I don't actually need to go down it. You know what I mean? Like I can see, <laughs> yeah, I can see yeah. everything down that road. So like, why would I, why would I continue on this path? Like seeing it is almost as good as doing it. And from this point forward, I will just be going through the motions of a journey I've already anticipated. And I do not expect to be meaningfully surprised on that journey. Um, that's kind of my take on it. That's, that's how I relate to this. Cause I definitely do have that feeling sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I think there's, a, but it's interesting the games that that Andy's bringing up here because I think there's there's a few different things happening. Um, Into the Breach is a very simple game. It's in getting the most out of yourself playing it that it sort of reveals itself to you. Um, but I don't begrudge anyone not wanting to go through all that. But it is just, but it is like the game that it is on the surface. Uh, that really is only the superficial like game that you're playing. Like really, it is about becoming an ever better, an ever more elegant and crafty into the breach player. 
I think that's that's the that's the journey. I think Spelunky it's it's a similar kind of thing of just like the point of playing Spelunky is to keep better, getting better and better at Spelunky. Um, yeah, and I mean that's a different problem than like with the Evil Within two, which is that I think a lot of modern games do make it way too easy for you to see down that road where they're taking you. And then it feels like you're, it feels like they're doing so much of the lifting for you that there's nothing there to explore. Hmm. Um, like we were talking about, uh, so we were talking about stalker the other day on waypoint radio. And I was talking about like how, how much that game does not give a shit about you. Like that game <laughs> has a map and everything and there's objectives marked on it. But like really that game is not trying to help you. The map is not very good. It is certainly not very detailed. It is certainly not very readable. Like most of what like you have to go places and actually experience things and figure them out for yourself. And you're going to get lost. You're going to get distracted. And the entire thing is going to be very unpredictable. And in a lot of ways, I think a lot of modern games would try to smooth that difficulty out of existence because it would be continually diagnosed as a problem. No, we need more signposting. We need more clear objectives so that the player knows where they should be going and what they should be doing at any given time. And I haven't played The Evil Within 2. Maybe I'm being unfair to it, but I do feel like there are so many games that, in trying to be helpful, destroy all the goddamn mystery that makes a world appealing. (laughs) Yeah, yes. I hear that one for sure. Um, And that is something I... I, It's so difficult because a game does need to communicate... It needs to communicate enough uh, to give you something to go on. But if it communicates too much, then it's it's really ruining a lot of its world building. uh, For sure, yeah. And as players, we're assholes. Like, Austin... (laughs) Like, every time Austin and I, mostly Austin make a terrible move in our XCOM playthrough. <laughs> yep. And because either something wasn't clearly marked or uh, because there's a weird rule, like, or there's just an unexpected interaction of like line of sight rules. Uh, every time that happens, we're both kind of pissed. We're like, how, yeah. how, how dare the game do this? Like, we, we just got totally fucked here. That's bullshit. But then at the same time, like if the game doesn't surprise us, if we're not caught off guard or tickled by the unexpected from time to time, then it becomes starts becoming a really rote and dull experience. And so it's this weird thing of like I sympathize with game designers who like face this problem of like we want our games to be eminently playable and predictable, but also to surprise and delight us. Yeah. Our brains are terrible. Yet again. <laughs> Our brains are awful. Enjoy existential dread on this idle weekend. <laughs> uh, but Andy, short answer, turn off the goddamn map and um, try to be better at Into the Breach. And if the process of getting better seriously sucks, then maybe you really are really just done with it. But I think maybe you're bailing out on things a little too quickly uh, in games like that. But uh, Evil Within, yeah, if you can turn off maps and like, I mean... Prey, I for sure turned off all interface help pretty much from the start. Um, that was one of the reasons that game became special for me is because I didn't navigate that freaking space station by uh, map markers or HUD markers. I navigated yeah. it. Well, I navigated it by schematics and I navigated it by like learning where everything was. Yeah. I, I would also tell Andy that... Uh play the achievements in Into the Breach because they become entire games into themselves of, of how to do things with this type of mech or 
get this weird result or get the squad achievements are really fun actually. And if you need to make a new game out of your game, that's a totally okay thing to do. If that's how you have fun. Uh, this one I think was uh, pretty pointed for you, Danielle. Yeah. Uh, this comes from Sean. Uh, about five years ago, I got my first full-time job. Shortly after the new Dungeons & Dragons launched and got me into role-playing games in a big way, I got a subscription to the local cinema. Cinemas here in Ireland offer all-you-can-eat all subscription memberships for about the cost of two standard tickets a month. Oh, shit. Nice. I need to go to Ireland. Yeah. Since roughly that time, I found myself unable to keep up with video games or TV shows until the Switch only fitting in about one video game a year and only having gotten around to watching BoJack Horseman, Jessica Jones, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine out of basically all modern TV. Those are good choices, though, I have to say, Sean. You did good. If those are the only three you've seen, that's Missing pretty good. Missing some important ones, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, true. No Americans, no Expanse. Right. Still. Yeah, yeah, Americans the Expanse. Uh, get it together, Sean. Uh, <laughs> my dust-covered gaming PC that I haven't switched on since November 2016. Good time to just stop doing lots of things, to be honest. Yep. My dust-covered <laughs> gaming PC that I haven't switched on since November 2016 <laughs> and my Netflix sub that I never log into are, are testaments to this. Hell, I used to watch all the anime, but lately I found I spend almost all my free time preparing and running D&D or going to the cinema. Friends constantly recommend me prestige TV shows, board games, and comics, and I just have to smile and say, sure, I'll add it to my list, <laughs> knowing that I'll never actually get around to looking at it. But Sean, you have to do what we tell you to do. Uh, our list is more important. Yes. Uh, anyway, my question is, have you ever found you had to abandon hobbies you love and cherish to give time to other hobbies you found? How do you balance... How do you find balance in your life between living and consuming media when the deluge of content in the forms of TV, movies, games, books, comics, and anime seems never-ending and all compete for your attention? Oh my god, it is terrifying. <laughs> Sean. Sean, this is the realist this is a real problem, my friend. This is <laughs> I'm gonna answer it with brains are terrible. We can't see this as a good thing. Like like what what an age okay no we live in trump's america here and it's awful but in terms of entertainment strictly in terms of entertainment we live in an era of unprecedented choice for uh, having amazing things right but because we are mere humans and our brains cannot process things on like 10 different levels at once we can only watch or play at most two things at once, right? Or three, whatever. The actual... Some people... Most people think they're much better at multitasking than they actually are. Oh, God. Um, yeah, no. People are like, I'm a great multitasker. Are almost always lying. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure there's, like, studies out there that basically prove that at this point. There are. Yeah. And there are a few people who have truly great multitasking abilities. And there's, like, ten of them on planet Earth. So, like, yes, it exists. You're probably not one of them. <laughs> and it's very unfortunate. And I sure wish I was better at multitasking than I actually am, like most people. <laughs> uh, I feel this in the core of my soul, though, Sean, because as a person who thrives on being busy, but also gets overwhelmed by how busy I, I get um, through, you know, my various jobs and hobbies, doing EMS work, uh, swimming grappling, et cetera, et cetera, having friends, being social, doing all those things. It's, it's actually really hard. And also sleeping enough. Honestly, not enough people list sleeping as a hobby, but man, sleep is great. It's so good. It's like one of the best things. So yeah, you got to make some tough choices. Um, 
And the best thing I guess you can do is to uh, listen to trusted voices like mine and Rob's uh, when we say when we like, speak when we speak, you know, which isn't all the time. So we're not taking up too much of your time, you know, to be fair. <laughs> so when we say things like watch The Expanse and The Americans, you know that it's coming from a trustworthy source. <laughs> uh, really, the only answer to this is uh, getting extremely tired makes everything worse and makes time management even more difficult. So doing and the things like... have you considered becoming independently wealthy? Yes, exactly. That part really helps, especially with the games and media portion. Although it sounds like he has a really killer deal in Ireland, uh, being able to watch all the movies he wants for the that's cost of two tickets. That's pretty fucking thing. cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's not a bad deal, it sounds like, my friend. Um, so yeah, having infinite time and infinite money would help. Uh, but uh, barring that, I honestly think the best thing you can do is... Uh, Try to be healthy and, and, and maintain something of a healthy lifestyle, whatever that means for you. Uh, that is a personal choice uh, in terms of how people do that. But having something like a healthy lifestyle, having a decent balance of the things in your life, and also when it comes to recommendations and like, where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Listen to people you trust. Listen to people that you like and think might be, uh, you know, trustworthy voices. It's okay if you don't like something. It's okay if you want to stop playing something or stop watching something or stop reading something. It's it's cool. It's cool to say no when you're done with something. Uh, that's that's the only baseline advice I can really give. But I, I hear you, my friend. I, I do hear you. Loud and clear. See, that's interesting to me because I would have expected a way less healthy answer from you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Thanks a lot. Uh, Danielle, 14 different jobs, Riendo. Uh, but just because I do it doesn't mean I want everyone to suffer. Yeah. No, but I think like, but that is, but that is a healthy answer because I think the alternative is so a Drive couple yourself things. Bananas. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. is so the last couple weeks, uh, the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs have been going concurrently yeah. and they're great. I am super into both of these. Good. I have started to become oppressed by how many how many goddamn sports I'm watching, <laughs> and like I'm like recording them on my DVR. Like I don't have to miss any of it. I can just watch all of it. And so now I feel this obligation whenever I have downtime to have sports on in the background. But obviously, that's like three hours of games a night. With, you know, commercial breaks removed, whatever. So that's a pretty stiff commitment. So I have to multitask. And so I was talking about this on Waypoint Radio. And it, it has been kind of cool. Like, there have been a lot of nights where I'm watching a lot of sports. And then on my laptop, I'm streaming Battletech uh, from my gaming rig. And playing a bunch of Battletech while I'm watching the games. And keeping one eye on both. And probably not paying enough attention to either to really get the max enjoyment out of them. <laughs> but I can say I'm having it all. Um, but even so, at this point, I'm like kind of like hitting my limit with just how much of that I can do. And so I have this weird feeling of... And it's not even that I'm not enjoying myself. Like I am still really into these series. But I'm also becoming increasingly aware of the opportunity costs of like... There's a great book that I've been wanting to get back into for a few days now because I just haven't had time to read any of it. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff I want to play. Um, like, 
and am hunting for time to do that. And I feel that I'm, that I'm not doing it. Uh, also, I've recently sort of hit this realization that like, shit, uh, like the, sh- the thing that matters the most for whether or not I'm going to be a functional and like emotionally stable human being is whether or not I've exercised in the last yes. like day or two. Yeah. Uh, and if I haven't, and, and the weird thing is like that, and that thing is the first thing to go. Like the minute I get into a little bit of a spiral, the first thing I throw over the side is like healthy habits, good eating and stuff. So I actually have to be really good about that or I, or I fall right off the wagon. Anyway, so the point is like I, like I have kind of been refusing to make these choices. And so now whatever I'm doing, I have this nagging sense of guilt about all the shit I'm not doing. And so I actually really would like to be, and I admire someone who can smile and say, like, I'll add it to my list and, like, actually not really give a shit about whether you make it down that list. That's an awesome thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll sort of cop to here is that, and this goes back to maybe their conversation about Total War a little bit. I am forever chasing the person I was toward the end of my college career Mm. because that person who's practically a stranger to me now, but like I was (laughs) this person like fenced several times a week, uh, like translated Latin poetry for fun. Wow. Uh, that doesn't shock me, but the better part of a book on uh, international relations and Greek history. Whoa. Um, and then also I was in the middle of reading just tons of great books and taking notes on all of them that like became grist for like this burst of creativity. And I was doing some really great writing at the time. Uh, and so like when I look at those days, it was literally like mornings hanging out with my girlfriend afternoons, in coffee shops and libraries, like reading and studying and absorbing just massive amounts of knowledge about new shit. Uh, and then afternoon, like afternoons, early evenings of, you know, exercise, gym, uh, fencing, all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, hanging out with friends, uh, watching TV, uh, or more doing writing, uh, at night. And that was like every day. And, I sometimes think about that and I'm like, there was time enough in the day for all of that. And that's everything I want to do right now. Like, it's not that different. And so I'm kind of like haunted by this of like, well, why the fuck can't I do that? And yeah, like not watching two hours, two hours, three hours of sports each night would help. Uh, <laughs> but back then I was able to have all that plus video games, plus movies. And I am forever like, where did all that time go? Where did all that diversity of experience and thought go? Um, and the answer is probably jobs. Like if we come down to it, and that's sort of why the become idle, like become independently wealthy is not entirely, you know, <laughs> unjust. Uh, you know, if you look about like, you know, the great like Renaissance type personalities, uh, you know, gentlemen scientists and, and shit, um, philosophers, a lot of them sort of come from these like super privileged backgrounds where like, Oh, these are people who didn't in a lot of cases didn't have to sweat that much about where they were going to make their daily bread. Yeah. (laughs) And you could study anything. The more I think about, 
this in the, this this sort of obvious sort of lineage that wasn't obvious to me when I was younger, but <laughs> how much schooling is for the privileged uh, and used to be and is again. So we're, we're sort of coming out of the time of, of education being in any way, not that it's ever been equal, ever, 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 uh, by any means, but the time where getting a college degree was even remotely affordable, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to to a middle class person or a working class person who could, you know, at, at some era of the of the last century, it was maybe not uh, easy in any way, but maybe possible for a person to work part time and uh, pay off their school loans without uh, yeah. incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. That is no longer true. I, of course, I know there are some examples where that's true, but really, for a lot of us, it's not true anymore. The amount to which education has again gone back to this sort of privileged uh, class is haunting and terrifying. Yeah, yeah. For uh, sure. The uh, only oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Oh, uh, the only the only thing I was going to say in terms of true multitasking, I thought of it as we were chatting. The only true multitasking that actually works is exercising and watching a thing. Yes. Uh, doing like cardio on a bike or a treadmill or whatever uh, and actually watching stuff is like one of the only truly productive ways <laughs> to do multitasking. The, and this, like was, this is a marker <laughs> of how hard up like I am for time. I used yeah. to be like I can only exercise if I got my jams going. You know what I mean? Like I oh, like yeah. I have my different mixes and shit, <laughs> and I gotta be oh, like, yeah. sorry, like I can't exercise effectively unless it sounds <laughs> inside my he- headphones like a football team's gym in like the late nineteen nineties. Yes. Um. So you know, a lot like a, a lot of a lot of Queen and weirdly a lot of Outcast. Fucking yes. Yeah. Um, but I recently started to be like, actually, for cardio, I can probably just put on a podcast. Yeah. And that's what I've started doing. Uh, and I use, and it's, and it's not as good. I don't enjoy it as much because, like, the cool thing about listening to music was definitely that, like, I would sort of fall into a flow state a little bit and just kind of start like powering through my workout. And if you know your playlist really well, you know, there's certain parts where you get really pumped up and you start like really, like really going at it uh, for those passages. And that's really cool. Uh, And that's tough to do with the podcast. Um, And like now the only thing that is sort of equivalent to that is, um, you know, a little while back I was like, listening to giant bomb game of the year stuff and they were talking about the best world award and i was getting so angry that i realized like i was doing like 22 miles an hour on a stationary bike i was like what the fuck (laughs) getting angry it's a good thing let me angry let me let me posit you this uh I watch a lot of fights while I work out now. Yeah. Uh, if I'm doing like, you know, standard cardio, obviously if I'm like training jujitsu, I'm not watching something, but like, you know, gym cardio, you know, just in the gym kind of thing. I watch a ton of fights. So uh, sometimes classic fights, like old yeah. MMA, old boxing, that stuff is great. You know what else is amazing? Watching like 80s Celtics games, like 90s Bulls games, yeah. like classic sports. Like when it's a good ass game, those are amazing for workouts. Just just throwing that one out there. If you if if you have the interest in it, I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. You don't have to. Just, 
Just putting it out there. All right, all right. We got another question. Uh, we, we should probably get to our question. weekend projects, to be Actually, honest. yes. Oh, my God. I just looked at the time. Look at the time. We've gone for an hour and 11 minutes. Rob, I've, I've got a lot of things to talk to you about. Yeah, um, it's been a while. It's been so long. Uh, but uh, why don't you go first? I, I, I have one that I would like to talk about very much, but I'm going to let you go first. Why don't you go first? Okay. Um, So a little while ago, I went back and I read a book that I remembered as being one of my favorites. And I was shocked at how much, like, I still enjoyed it. But man, has it aged questionably in some ways. Um, And that is Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Oh. Now, Kitchen Confidential is a great memoir of what it was like to be a line cook in a cuisine in, like, New York in the 80s. Um, yeah. which means basically it's a memoir of cocaine and, and kitchens uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. Yes. And uh-huh. it's tough because a lot of it, let's see, there's a lot of thoughtlessly used internalized like misogyny and sexism in, in the book. Um, and there's also a lot of descriptions of things that are clearly like egregious sexual harassment that yeah. are kind of laughed off, including stuff that's directed like at Bourdain, like like the culture, the kitchen cultures he portrays. It's like there are there are characters who appear in that story that were like, you know, kind of villains for Bourdain. But you look at it and it's like, actually, that's someone who probably might have needed to be arrested like that's yeah. not OK. Yeah. But. So there, there's part. It's partly that, um, but I think it's it's also just amazing how less how much less appealing I find that world, and yet how fascinating I still do find it. Like, <laughs> I think when I read it at the time, I thought it was the coolest shit that like professional cooking was like these bands of unruly pirate crews and <laughs> guys would put their you know get the band back together, uh, all this shit. And it's a really fun memoir for that. And especially like toward the end as it starts getting a little more reflective, uh, both about like different ways of going about this. Uh, because like toward the end, Bourdain kind of admits that, well, because he's a mediocre cook, he actually only like maybe kitchens aren't inherently chaotic and stupid and malevolent places. Maybe it's him. (laughs) Like maybe like that is the kitchen that he created again and again and again, because for years he was a fuck up and an asshole and, uh, someone struggling with a with a variety of pretty serious addictions. And so there's this point toward the end of the book where he like sees how other chefs are running their joints. And he realizes like, some of these places are they're like churches, just how quiet and calm. <laughs> they're functional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that really hit home because I think when you're like when you're when you're younger, you sort of crave those places that are nonstop like adrenaline thrill rides. Uh and Later, when you you know you've been around different workplaces and you've dealt with more people who are like those agents of chaos, your patience for that shit is just non-existent. You know what I mean? Like now I read this stuff yeah. and I'm like, 
well, I would fucking walk out of that place in a heartbeat. <laughs> like, I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. put up with that shit. Uh, but we're like, side note about this book. Uh, it's sort of responsible for the one night. Uh, it was a couple nights actually, uh, where I ended up being the like, basically being like the sous chef of a fancy restaurant, um, <laughs> with no warning. Really? Yes. Oh, I need to hear this. So I worked for this complete fucking asshole. Uh, back in my old college town. And this guy ran, in addition to his other businesses, and he's one of those guys, like, you never knew it. Like, you worked at one of his businesses, but, like, you could be pulled over in another one at any time. And, like, you were just expected to be flexible about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, At one point, I remember cleaning out his fucking barn uh, instead (laughs) of doing my shift, uh, which seemed pretty fucking sketch, but whatever. Anyway, so, one like, I got to know some of the guys in his restaurant pretty well. And they were cool cats, but the head chef was, he made a point to buy all his cooks copies of Kitchen Confidential at every new oh place boy. he worked. And the minute he told me that, I knew we were in for some shit. Like, that's not, <laughs> like, that's a detail, like, where, where he's like, that place is the fucking Bible. That place, like, everything you need to know about cooking is in that book. Cooking professionally is in that book. And that is the sort of thing that, like... Someone who's about to drive the train over, like off the rails, says because <laughs> yeah. a lot of that book is about like completely screwing owners over. It is about how stupid a lot, stupid or corrupt a lot of the people in in the industry are. And so when he's telling me that, like we're having drinks, and he's like, you know, we got along, but like the minute I heard that, I was like, okay, we'll see how this goes. We'll see where yeah. this goes. And probably a couple months later. Um, he and my boss are going at it enough that eventually the guy pulls the move that, uh, you know, chefs in that mold always will, which is fuck you. I quit. And so his second command is promoted and uh server moves up a notch. And so a couple nights after that, I'm talking to the second in command and he's like, so don't tell, uh, don't tell the boss, but I'm not going to be here tomorrow. And neither is anyone else. Oh god! Wait, so so just to clarify, what was your position at this point? Uh, I worked retail at a at another business like down the block, owned by god, this guy. Okay, okay, good. So so we so like halfway between there was this bar, and we'd all end up drinking there. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of those really like this you know this guy had inherited his money and all this shit. So like everyone in this weird like fucked up business family. Um, all just had various issues of dealing with this this asshole. Uh, the guy was yeah. a nightmare. But so yeah, so I work retail. Like I'm not involved in this shit at all. Like occasionally I've had to clean up that restaurant and everything, but like it's not like I don't work there. But he's like, yeah, you're a good guy. Like so, here's the deal. Uh, you better bra- brace yourself for shit to get weird around here because I'm not coming back tomorrow. No one's coming in tomorrow, uh, and we're not coming back ever again. So. Yeah. Uh, so I keep that under my hat because you know, fuck, like those guys were legit. Like they, like I wouldn't hire them to cook in my restaurant, but like shit, uh, you know. At the same time, they had the reasons for doing what they were doing. So next day rolls around. Prep needs to start around noon. Nobody shows. Oh god. Boss is starting to get all in high dudgeon, and then at like three o'clock, 
the cook finally answers the phone and basically is like, fuck you, you piece of shit. And that's that's it. Like, he realizes there's a full walkout. And so with no warning, he just sort of pulls the room like, does anyone here know about cooking? And, like, I was one of, like, an, like an idiot, I raised my hand. Oh, no. Uh, but, oh, no, like, Rob. so there were a handful of us that went over there. And we tried to get through uh, a shift. And this place was a, like, it was supposedly a classic French restaurant. And we oh get in there God. and, like, nobody knows how to do anything. And so my boss is like, well, I'm pretty good with a grill. And so he cuts, like, and so he has somebody run out to the supermarket because, like, when a professional kitchen walks out, uh, a lot of stuff is delivered daily. And a lot of stuff, like, you, like, and also, like, there's a complicated inventory system. Like, so if all that paperwork and documentation has left the building and nobody's been, like, returning calls to vendors for a little bit. Uh, you're pretty screwed. And so it ended with like people racing out to supermarkets to like get like tons of different steaks. Um, and so we wow. redid the menu for that night and it was all my boss could cook, which was basically jack shit. Um, and so it was like, uh, it was steak with like a one steak sauce being passed oh, off no. as some sort of like port wine reduction. Uh, <laughs> it, like it was amazing. But the other thing is the guy was so <laughs> I will never forget this. Um so at one point he's cutting together cheese plates cuz that we were leaning pretty heavily on cheese plates that night. Yeah. Um and so he's slicing these together and plating them. Uh and he's cutting he cuts he cuts through he's cutting through soft cheese. <laughs> and so like there's still like a bit of brie on the knife. And so in between cuts, he starts wiping it off with his finger, slurping it. No, no. And then resuming cutting. No. And so oh. me and the me and the bartender sort of look at like we, we see this happen. We sort of look at each other. And <laughs> the guy just starts laughing, sees my face, and I'm like, uh, boss, like, are you sure that's how you should be doing that? Like maybe we should get a separate knife. And my boss, like, True to true to form uh, for this guy is basically like I'm paying you to flip steaks tonight, not give me your opinion. Like that was the kind of <laughs> shit that he would say. Like this is why everyone left him. Uh, so anyway, um, but at the same time, it was amazing because it was like we we still had a full service those nights. You know, we were still taking a lot of uh, orders. And because it was such a shit show, I had for a couple days, like that quintessential, like restaurant chaos experience. Uh, and it was a blast. Like, be, it, because like it was, there was, there was no failing. Like who gave a shit? Like I was, I was a, I was, a, I was a cashier. Like, wow. I was a cashier and I was showing up at like seven in the morning one day to start, I swear to God, to start on stock that would turn into uh, like demi glace uh, by the by the end of shift. I hoped maybe, uh, but probably not. <laughs> but at least we get a really reduced stock. 
Uh, and if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. So, like, I was king of that kitchen for the better part of a shift. Uh, and, uh, you know, everyone home happy. Like, nobody noticed, which I think says a lot about the quality of the food. Like, <laughs> at one this point... This is a classic French restaurant. That's what I... I just keep seeing those words in horror. <laughs> like, as this story goes on, I'm just... Wow. Dude, it was... It was wild, especially when, like, we were trying to come up with a menu for the next shift and, like, things that seemed within our reach. And I was like, let's do um, cream of mushroom soup. Not so hard. Um, okay. yeah. And it, it looked pretty feasible. And so I start making it. And then my boss asks, well, how much does this cost? And I sort of hand him the cost sheet, like, all the ingredients that we bought. And he loses his shit because <laughs> it is coming out to, like... I think it was coming out to like a buck twenty-five, a buck fifty in cost per serving, mm-hmm. and he was like, "I expect this to be down to like twenty-five cents a serving." Oh wow! And at his classic French restaurant. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> and like when I told the bartender that, he just laughed and was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Like wow. at that point, like it's Campbell's soup. Like that's that's <laughs> what we can afford on that. Like that doesn't pay for ingredients. Uh, but anyway, so that's the play, kind of place where we, we were. Uh, but it all started with this group of, for sure, for sure, um, like slightly, slightly tweaked out um, cooks who worshipped the altar of Anthony Bourdain. Oh, fucking wow. So you worked here at this hilarious Disaster, and you also worked at that golf course with that rich guy who. Yep. You gave him his watch back, and he was oh, like, "Oh fuck that!" Like, God damn it, I still think about that <laughs> a lot. God damn, you have lived, you have lived a life, Rob. Ah, oh, wow. Um, not nearly as awesome as that, but one day I'll tell you the the full story of the of the. Uh, the legacies of the ice cream store. Okay. The legacies? One day. I mean, I worked for, here's the smallest possible ways. I'm not going to go all into it, but every year, in uh, including the years b- before and after, and every summer during college, I lived at home in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and I worked for a mad woman who ran <laughs> a number of ice cream stores. Oh, like she was like an ice cream baron? Parlors. <laughs> A little bit, oh except God. for my paychecks bounced all the time. So, Fuck. like, I don't know if barren is the right word or, like... Well, no, no. I mean, come on. What is more, like, <sighs> decaying nobility than rubber checks? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I beg your it's pardon. It's more the customers that we had. And, funds. Oh, yeah. She... she Paid too much on the ice cream. I don't know if it was all a front for, like, a mob thing or what. Oh, I that's really right. It's Providence. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. North Providence, which is even yeah. worse. Um, but like the the like cast of fucking characters that were in her life and the like weird antics she had. And she drove a golden beamer, this lady. She drove a fucking gold like oh, golden dude, rod, like okay, like come on, what are the odds she was not mobbed up? I that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, and, I'm and, sorry. Like, like it was very like, all right. <laughs> and she her other uh business, which of course, same same story as as your your buddy, uh all of her businesses, you kind of worked at one, but you might be yep. wherever. Uh she also ran a, a, a 
a shoe store that catered to mostly old ladies. Uh, so I, I don't know, man. I just, <laughs> if you were going to launder money in North Providence, Rhode Island, uh, I can think of nothing better than a bunch of ice cream parlors and a shoe store catering to very old ladies who may or may not one day have had a disaster in the store bathroom. But that, again, a, that's a tale yeah. for another all day. all right. I look uh, forward to it. And one day, I'll tell you all about it. I actually miss it, which is the funny thing. Like, I, my sister and I both worked uh, for this person for years and years, just because it was a hilarious experience. Um, and just, we talk every summer, you know, it, the, the temperature starts going up, and we start like reminiscing. We'll call each other like once a summer. Not, I obviously talk to my sister more than that, but we'll call it once a summer and we'll do. You ever miss the X name? I guess I shouldn't say it. Yeah. Because <laughs> like uh, ice cream parlor confidential, but like, and we're both just like, yeah, I kind of miss those days. Kind of miss the guy who looked like Lando Calrissian who tried to get it on with the owner in the back while his kids ate ice cream in the front and all that other stuff. Did he succeed? No, she was like, you're married. And he's like, oh, you drive me crazy. You drive me crazy. Oh I know God. the whole thing. She would tell us every detail of every one of these just bananas oh fucking encounters. <laughs> yeah. Yup. <laughs> and the time she, all right, one more, one more. And then I, I, I promise I'll move on. But she had this boyfriend who was like Mr. New York hotshot. And now like, you know, when you live in Rhode Island, New York is like, Holy shit, that's another planet. It might as well be, right? Like New York. Oh my god, you know, New York City. So she had this boyfriend. Let's call him Joe. It wasn't Joe, but let's call him Joe. And let's call her Le- uh Lisa. Let's call her Lisa. Lisa is the owner of this yeah. place. And she's got Joe. Joe. That's how she talks, of course. And she was mad at him. I forget what he did. He may have cheated on her. He may have done something. But she apparently cut the uh, Ralph Lauren uh, pony polo ponies off of his two favorite shirts and scrawled in like a blood font, like a like used red paint to to like write a, a ransom note with the two ponies that was just like help us. And she took a picture of this and sent it to him. This was cute. She meant it to be cute. Uh, she she thought this is adorable. <laughs> This is the kind of person that Lisa was. She ran these businesses and she wrote bloody ransom notes with her boyfriend's ponies on them. Anyway. Oh, my God. uh, You know, I, uh, yeah, I'll tell you the whole tale one day. Yeah. uh, yeah. No, I totally get what you mean, though. Like, (laughs) the thing is. There's, I mean, there's a few things. One is that. In a lot of those workplaces, outside of, like, at this point, we're both in phases of our careers where, despite us writing about video games, we we are in at least ostensibly professional workplaces. And, like, we are, we are yeah. working professionals. Yeah. And I think there's an element of theater that goes along with all of that, where it's like... <laughs> sure it is. You know... No, we are we are serious, like savvy business people. We know what we are doing here. We will attend these meetings. We will like show we are we will be productive. We will you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And like bullshit jobs have this lack of pretense about any of that. Like I have never felt like as much solidarity with a group of people that as I did with the people I took smoke breaks with. 
at that liquor, like at that uh, liquor store I worked yeah. at, or at that content mill I worked at years later, or at that restaurant <laughs> I ended up working at by accident, <laughs> like because everyone knew on some level, like this is bullshit, right? Like this is totally fucked, and like it doesn't mean yeah. anything. You know what I mean? Like it's a paycheck, but nobody's invested in it, and the job is so unbelievably shitty and meaningless that like if you lose it, chances are you can just like it might take you a few weeks, but like someone else is willing is going to be willing to pay you the seven fifteen <laughs> seven twenty five an hour to get this shit done. Uh, and so there's this element of like you're on the one hand you get this really weirdly intimate look at your coworkers and particularly your boss, like small businesses are like a reflection of the boss's neuroses and issues. Oh yeah. And so it's this bizarre way of like seeing a person's character writ large across store, like shop aisles or window displays. It is a weird fucking thing. Uh, But it's also just kind of liberating. Like I wouldn't go back at all because like, for all my nostalgia for it, like when those things stopped being summer jobs and when I was out of college during the uh, financial crisis and those became just mm-hmm. like my fucking life rafts instead of a career, like yeah. it wasn't fu- It wasn't fun at all. It sucked and it felt like hopeless and soul crushing, but nostalgia does its thing. And I remember a lot of this stuff as like just kind of hilarious, like just the yeah. just the weird cast of characters and just the complete contempt and indifference we had for some of these managers. <laughs> um, and the yeah. fact that we all knew there were no real stakes to it, like we weren't invested in it because they were, these weren't careers for anybody. Uh, and there's yeah. something kind of cool about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I I, I should say like. I count my my lucky stars that I don't have to, you know, uh, rely on this <laughs> like barely functioning ice cream parlor for my my yeah. living. You know, I was a kid. I was a college kid and uh, was very lucky to have, you know, support and all that uh, so that this was just my crappy summer job. Uh, but yeah, that is that is very much worth. Uh, You're worth married. You're married. No, Lisa, you drive me crazy. Drive me crazy, Lisa. And apparently he looked exactly like, and my my sister is the one who witnessed uh, seeing this man. Uh, He looked exactly like Billy D. Williams, like to the mustache, like the whole thing. He looked exactly like him. And uh, he was trying to play that up with, uh, with Lisa in the back, you know. Oh, my God. All right, your endorsement. I'm sorry. I want to talk about Superstore now that we did this and Superstore just ended. Like, so fuck just, it. This just is... watch Superstore. Yeah, you know what? I was going to talk about Jessica Jones season two, but I'm not done with it yet. So we're going to talk about Superstore because it leads in so perfectly. And that season just ended. And Lord, please watch Superstore. Uh, it is a hilarious, hilarious, hilarious comedy about basically working at Walmart, working retail in America in 2018. Uh, And it's very, very sharply written, but also in the spirit of like, it's a good hearted show, even though a lot of dire shit gets uh, sort of tossed around. Like it's it's basically a look at the lives of the absurdity of having to work retail for for your living in in our current horrific, terrible dystopia. Uh, America Ferrara is like one of the lead characters. I know we've talked about it a little bit uh, in the past, for sure. I've endorsed it before. I've weekend projected it before. Uh, but the latest season 
was probably my favorite so far uh, because it started going in hard uh, towards things like just making gestures towards fairness in employment uh, and sort of uh, the ways in which bosses take advantage of people and the ways in which corporate environments take advantage of people and are like pretty much one of the main contributors to our, our hellish dystopia. And the characters themselves are just so truly lovable. So yeah, America Ferrara plays Amy, who is this, like, you know, maybe one of the most relatable people on the show. She was a woman who, you know, sort of was on the path to like, I want to go to college and, and have a career, but she got pregnant at 19 and sort of married her high school sweetheart and had a kid with him and kind of got stuck being like an assistant manager at this it's called Cloud Nine is the store, but it's basically a Walmart or a Target or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and there's dude Jonah, who is just this hipster at, you know, East Coast hipster who finds himself in St. Louis and, and now working at the store because, you know, he failed out of business school. And so here he is doing his thing, talking about whatever he wrote, he read in the Atlantic and drinking kombucha and all that other stuff. And uh, there's a whole cast of characters uh, beyond that. And uh, the season just ended, and I don't want to give anything away, but it ended on a bang, on a real high note uh, that, like, just makes me uh, so excited to see what the writers will do next on this show. I don't know how they keep sort of elevating the stakes and escalating sort of what's going on with the action, but they constantly manage to be funny and sort of score points for, you know... Score points for the little guy right. kind of every time uh, in a really sort of feel good way, a very, you know, Parks and Rec feel good kind of way. The show doesn't get bleak. Uh, with, I mean, it does in a way, yeah. but the tone never gets bleak. Like what's going on in the text can be very bleak because uh, one of the main plots uh, this season was about somebody getting fired basically for ageism. Uh, and they managed to do it in a funny way that you are you are laughing at what's going on, but without uh, sort of without ignoring the weight of the implications of what was happening and without sort of ignoring the through lines of what that actually means and what's actually going on there. So it sure paints a bleak picture <laughs> of reality, uh, but you are laughing the whole time you're watching the show. At least I am. I I fucking love this show. Uh, it's so good. And I, I have to shout out probably my favorite character on this show in, in a whole ensemble cast that's wonderful. And I, 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 have, I have to look up the actress's name. Uh, her name is Dina on the on the show. And she is just this hysterical. All right. Dina on Superstore. I'm just going to Google it like that <laughs> because, God, she's so good. All right. Her name is Lauren Ash in the show. And her name is Dina Fox. Uh, the character and she is this just hysterical hard ass like I, I god it's hard to explain it's hard to explain she is just a force of personality who is both like a rule obsessed um <laughs> assistant manager and also like is a vegan who loves birds and also like i think she loves guns she is basically doing uh Melissa McCarthy from Bridesmaids, but on a whole other level and as an assistant manager in a retail store. And it is it is a performance worth just drinking in every moment of it. Is, it is a thing to behold. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, my God. Watch Superstore. Do it. Do it for yeah. yourself. I mean, check it out. Do it for her. Do it for you. Do it. Do it for whoever you got to do it for. 
And next time I will talk about Jessica Jones. But by next time, I'm sure I'll have finished <laughs> Jessica Jones. So that'll that'll do, I think. All right. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be back, Rob. It's it's so good. But of course, even until even coming season. back until next season on Idol Weekend, I think that it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. And for once, we're actually recording this on a Friday night, so it really is actually time we had a good to go weekend out and enjoy our weekends. Hell yes, I am very excited about it. Feeling positive, feeling good. So this episode of Idol Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted. Of course, on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence. And we need new questions at questions <laughs> at idleweekend.net. Keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you listening to us and also waiting for new episodes. Uh, so if you could go ahead and tell a friend, tell a family member, tell, uh, you know, the assistant manager at your local Target, tell whoever you think might enjoy the show all about us. Doing that and rating us on iTunes helps us out so, so much. And we really do appreciate it. So thank you again, friends, for listening. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Mm-hmm.